Hello and welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I am one of your regular co-hosts, David Robertson. But unfortunately, due to technical issues, I'm having to re-record this. So I won't be joined today by my regular co-host, Christopher Cotter. But don't despair, you'll still get to hear his dulcet tones because this week's interview was recorded by Chris and it's with Don Llewellyn on the subject of feminism in the study of religion. And this interview is the second in our ongoing series sponsored by Socrel, the Sociology of Religion study group of the British Sociological Association. And I will therefore pass over to Chris to tell you all about it. Listeners and perhaps viewers, if the video camera has worked properly, um, who are familiar with the Religious Studies Project will know that the broad topic of religion and gender has been something that we've featured um, in the past. We've had Marta Chebotowska on why are women more religious than men. We had Elizabeth Michelson speaking on religion and gender. We've also had some uh, podcasts on religion and queer theory. But one thing um, in amongst all that milieu that we haven't covered is religion and feminism. And today, um, at the British Sociological Association's Sociology of Religion Study Group Annual Conference at Lancaster University, we're going to remedy that. And I'm joined um, by Don Llewellyn. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've always said Don Llewellyn, and then this morning uh, I heard you put them. Oh, I'm sounding Welsh Llewellyn. this morning, was yeah, I? Yeah, okay. so, uh, yeah, we're joined by Don. Um, he's been on the RSP before when we did a roundtable at Chester on a narrative approaches in the study of religion. So we're delighted to have you back, Don. It's lovely to be here. I'm very flattered to be asked. Um, and you're going to be talking about the broad topic of religion and feminism. Just to introduce Dawn, she's Senior Lecturer in Christian Studies and Deputy Director of the Institute of Gender Studies mm-hmm. at the University of Chester. And her research focuses on gender and contemporary Christianity and spiritualities. And whilst grounded in qualitative approaches in the study of religion, she also draws on feminist theologies and hermeneutics, Sociology of Religion and Feminist Theory. So hopefully we'll be hearing some of that. Um, Our current project's examining the interactions between Christian women's identities, motherhood and voluntary childlessness. And she recently published a monograph entitled Reading, Feminism and Spirituality, Troubling the Waves. There's a metaphor in there um, with Palgrave Macmillan back in 2015. And she also co-authored an article with the aforementioned Marta Cevatowska, titled Secular and Religious Feminisms, A Future of Disconnection, which should be highly relevant to today's podcast. So now that we've got that out of the way, Dawn, um, before we start on religion and feminism, just for the, the listener or viewer who may not know or may not know how you particularly use the term, mm. what are we talking about with feminism? I think there's a few ways of thinking about yeah. it, as there always is. Mm-hmm. I often say to students, feminism is a particular theoretical lens with which you can use to interrogate power relations between men and women or other kind of gendered identities, actually. So I do kind of sometimes switch between gender and feminism in that that way, in that way. Um, It's a political commitment to pushing for gender equality or analysing and identifying inequalities in that way. Um, for me personally, I would say my work is orientated towards feminism because I still want to hear women's voices and women's experiences about their interactions with religion. Mm. Um, and there is a kind of grounded everyday 
political movement that we know of as feminism. So there's a, a historical, social and political movement too. So there's the academic study, there's the way I kind of use it in, in my own work, and then yeah. there's that wider social women's movement uh, which pushes for uh, gender change. Mm. All right. Now, the, the, the subtitle of your book then was Troubling the Waves. Yeah. Uh, uh, so th- th- there's a notion of there's the first wave, second wave, third wave feminism. Um, w- what's that all about? So the most common way yeah, in yeah. which feminism is depicted historically, as is this series of stages or waves, beginning the first first wave, often thought of that um, that kind of suffragette movement. So mm-hmm. beginning in the US with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the reformers, who were actually trying to carve out a space for themselves as women when their menfolk were campaigning against slavery and, uh, and for the temperance movement. They were rejected from those meetings and decided to kind of go and form their own uh, meeting. And that was about political enfranchisement. Yeah. That was about women getting the vote and campaigning um, for women to have some kind of say yeah. within the political social sphere. So if you think about that wave as being kind of 18, kind of 50s onwards, really. And then the second wave of feminism is often thought of beginning in the 1960s feminist movement. Those images of women on the streets, the Green and Common um, campaigns. And that was about equality rights within the workplace. It was about um, access to reproductive health. Um, it was about uh, childcare, those kind of political issues that um, were grossly unfair to, towards women. Mm-hmm. Third wave tends to be associated with 1990s and a sense of women being told or feminists being told that feminism's dead, it's all mm-hmm. done, it's all done and dusted, we've done it. And uh, associated with people like Rebecca Walker, the daughter of Alice Walker, who kind of said, hang on a second, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not post-feminist, I'm a, no. I'm a third-wave feminist. So a, a kind of re- a reluctance to accept this notion of post-feminism as a backlash yeah. against feminism. And then some people are arguing there's now a fourth wave of feminism, mm-hmm. which kind of has started in the 20, you know, like 2013, around that yeah. time, which particularly has expression within on li- online, yeah. a focus on intersectionality mm-hmm. and a kind of privilege checking. Mm. So there's, that's the normal kind of happy way, usually, that <laughs> the feminist yeah. movement or the women's movement is portrayed. Yeah. That's, that's a kind of movement, yeah, that, that, that's, that's metaphor, that wave yeah. movement. Often seen as very singular, isolated, clear-cut yeah. moments in history that aren't necessarily, don't focus on the continuations between that. Yeah, and of course, we know that things are much more complicated on the ground. Yeah. But um, as you've already been hinting at there, you know, feminism's not just about women, no. right? Um, no. But, you know, and, and maybe that's what sort of third wave was maybe trying to get at this sort of, you know, we've got to think about, um, it's not all just about white middle class yeah. women, and it's not all about people yeah. in the West. So, yeah, so the, the way in which the... Um, that third wave history kind of narrates itself yeah. in some ways is that with second wave feminism you had a, an emphasis on solidarity, sisterhood and a universalisation of women's experiences. So there's something clear cut to campaign for and against. It was yeah. this thing, this big monolithic thing called patriarchy which women were um, kind of um, experiencing in very similar ways. Second wave feminism tended to universalise and generalise women's experiences. And of course that came from the particular privileged uh, experiences of white middle class educated women. 
the critique of that um, often came from black women and um, other minority voices kind of saying, hang on a second, you know, you're kind of speaking for me and you're telling me how I'm dis not, not empowered. You're, you're telling me how to be empowered. But that's not particular to my experience. Mm. Um, and some people would say that third wave feminism actually came out of that critique of that universalizing and generalization of women's experiences in the second wave and the call to be more particular and pay attention to difference in ways in, uh, and pay particular attention to the way in which feminism itself can disempower and works on a kind of hierarchical um, basis. So when you think about third wave feminism, you're normally associated with that almost post-colonial critique of the yeah. second wave, a, an understanding of the fluidity of gendered identity. So you can see some post-structuralist and post-modern mm. um, influences there that we're not, you know, woman as a category cannot carry all the meanings, essentialized meanings yeah. with it. So there's an anti-essentialism mm. to third wave feminism. And some would say perhaps kind of emphasis on individualism within third wave feminism the kind of the second wave you know solidarity mm. didn't leave a voice for, for one's individual experience yeah. and then the fourth wave when you're looking at how the fourth wave's played out and how people are talking about the fourth wave they would say there's a slightly more emphasis on kind of collaboration not just amongst women's groups but across men's input too and I think that comes out with the emphasis on intersectionality that yeah. they claim which actually really had its roots in some of the third wave feminism. So that's why the whole wave metaphor, it's lovely, it's fantastic. <laughs> we can think about it in ways that, that do uh, make connections between the ways, but, you know, it, it can... It's a, it is a problem. Yeah, and it in itself is essentialising, which it is. is kind of anti-feminist. Really, it's really linear. Yeah. You know, there's a definite kind of moment in which feminism and the women's movement kind of happened it yeah. kind of forgets all the women that came before yeah it, it forgets all those all those women who were writing about women's agency and women's lives um and it just it, it kind of creates generational uh, disconnections mm. and i think it's based really on a very secular understanding of women's experiences so on that notion <laughs> secular you bring us to you know we're talking about religion and feminism, so we'd better get on with doing that. Um, so I think there are sort of three <laughs> waves that we could go in yeah, here, just yeah. to push that. Yeah. Um, there's, first of all, we should maybe talk about the broad relationship between religion and yeah. feminism. Yeah. Um, but then there's also the academic study of that, yeah. and then how the academic study of religion itself has interacted with feminism or not, as the case may be. But maybe let's... People's stereotype will probably be that uh, feminism and religion do not go hand in hand. Um, is that is that a fair stereotype, or it's, is there more to it? It's definitely definitely a tricky relationship in the way those two things have been represented. And I think what sometimes happens is the role that religious women have had within the history of feminism mm. has, has tended to be neglected. Yeah. But the roots of feminism, or if we're going with the wave metaphor, albeit with all its you know, yeah, difficulties, yeah. if we're going with that... We'll ride the wave. Yeah, we'll ride the wave. We'll <laughs> um, the first wave of feminism was, came out of Christian women's work. Mm. They, were all, they were concerned with the ways in which Christianity was shaping the public sphere in ways that negated their presence and mm. made their you know, kind of, uh, contribution less valuable. And they seek to rectify that through a religious lens. So yeah. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, associated with that first wave kind of suffragette movement, 
her and her colleagues got together and revised the Bible. They produced the Woman's Bible, yeah. a two-volume commentary on problematic representations and stories about women within the Bible. And Katie Stanton and her editors, they saw Christianity in the Bible, particularly, as, as almost being kind of the reason that women were disempowered in, in the public mm. space. So there is, there is that really close connection. I think, I think what's happened throughout, throughout, really, is that there is a, an association with, with feminism, with religious feminisms having a very insider confessional kind of viewpoint mm -hmm. about religion and almost a false consciousness. Women who are religious, perhaps by some forms of more secular feminism, if that's a way of putting mm -hmm. it, women who are religious, perhaps having some kind of false consciousness, unawareness of the patriarchal roots of the institution mm. that they're part of. Mm. And so they don't really talk to each other in, in, in some ways mm. um, in that respect. And that, that's, that's definitely happened, I think. That kind of stereotype that religion is the last bastion of patriarchy. So why, why would women be part of such a kind of horrific institution that yeah. treats them in this kind of appalling way? So I think we forget the history that religious women have had within shaping yeah. feminism and putting women's voices very clearly at the forefront of political and social change. And then I think there is sometimes this assumption, like boo to religion for women. Yeah. So we've had that obvious neglect of um, the historical feminists um, and their engagement with religion um, and their sort of growing out of religion in a sense. We know that in the contemporary context there are plenty of women who are religious. In fact, as, you know, as Marta points out, more women are religious than men and more and more women are feminists, more and more men are feminists. So we've got a contemporary situation where there's lots of religious women who are feminists. Um, and you've done some research with them. Um, so maybe you want to just turn the camera directly on your research for a few minutes okay. and if you maybe just tell us a bit about how that was you know why you conceived the project okay. how it was conceived what it involved and maybe what you found okay so i did qualitative work with women uh, who christian and post-christian in that very loose sense yeah. um, and most of them would identify as feminist or at least uh, identified with a kind of feminist sense of in uh, sense of sense of gender justice even if mm. they might not use the word the feminist. word might have been uh -huh, yeah. uh -huh. and that's one of the problems with the tricky relationship between religion and feminism too yeah. um, and I was interested in how they in, in feminist theology and literature you get this um, use of literature, women's writing particularly, as a way to critique the biblical representation of women and for women to form new narratives and to have a new collection of sacred texts that speak to their particular relationship with the divine or their sense of spirituality and religious identity. And I, was, I wanted to find out actually what women were really reading. So feminist theology was making certain claims about what what women were reading. And of mm. course, we know in wider discourses about reading and religion and literature, we know that pagan communities read Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Um, we know that, um, uh, yeah, so yes, yeah, so you've got that. So we know that that's happening. Um, and I wanted to find out what, what real readers, I guess, was might and what they were doing. How are they yeah. using the books that they felt were informing their spirituality outside of the biblical text? Mm -hmm. And so reading was, was very much a resource and they were and 
the women that I interviewed, one of the reasons that the Bible wasn't particularly helpful for their spiritual development was a very feminist critique of it. Mm. They were concerned about the power relations predicted in the Bible, the gender politics that we've inherited yeah. from the biblical text within the Western world. They didn't like the violence against women mm -hmm. or the silencing of women mm -hmm. within the biblical text. So they were turning to other writers for ways to kind of carve out a religious imaginary in which they could identify, confirm their spirituality, risk and challenge their own notions of what religion might mean for them. Mm. Um, but it, a lot of them were driven by the, the need to hear women's voices within a tradition. And I think that's what religious feminist scholarship tries to do. It tries to find women's voices within the tradition, either textually or doctrinally or mm -hmm. historically. But I think contemporary women themselves are searching for alternative voices, other voices, than mm. the dominant ones they've inherited from being within that tradition. I think that's quite a strong feature of contemporary um, feminists who are in religion. They also make up their own rituals as a way of kind of pushing back against the, yeah. the, the liturgies that they've in, inherited. And you can see that in some of the work I've been doing around motherhood and elective childlessness. There's, mm. you know, some of that's rejecting things like Mother's Day, you know, yeah. ritual and liturgy, and they're rejecting the biblical narratives that kind of inscribe a very pronatalist discourse, and they're finding other ways in which their choices can be validated, or mm. which can inform their choices about the way they're living out their religious lives. Mm. It's, it's, it's fascinating how the, the structures are still, <laughs> the patriarchal structures are still there, but yeah, women yeah. aren't. Yeah. Absolutely, negotiating this. And, and women have um, always carved out spaces yeah. within that. That we, you know, we yeah. know, we know that. So the ways in which they're doing that is is going to be changing. And there, there is always that kind of um, imaginative recreation of the tradition within which they're in. So in your article with um, Marta, mm -hmm. you discuss um, this sort of disconnect um, mm -hmm. that we've been hinting at mm -hmm. between um, sort of religious feminism mm -hmm. and secular mm -hmm. feminism. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could maybe speak to that for sure. a little bit and maybe reflect then on the academic study okay. of these things within the study of religion and maybe, you know, how, yeah. how that might play out. So, so in, that, in that article we suggested, and we were looking at third wave feminism in particular at that, at that time, um, we were arguing that when you look at the way in which third wave feminism presents itself and the kind of theoretical tools that it uses, um, and again kind of building on this idea that it saw itself as coming out of a critique of the second wave um, that was focusing on the intersectional ways in which um, you know, opp oppression kind of takes, takes place. We were kind of saying, well, what's really interesting about it? When you look at the, when you look at kind of a lot of the, the third wave stuff, it's all the different modes of identity. So it recognises that fluidity of identity. So it recognises that you know you you can be all sorts of different ways of identifying, and that re religions kept getting mi missed out. Mm. Um, so you'd have anthologies where um, you know people are identifying lots of different ways. But then the religious aspect of that was either not mentioned or it was de-theologised. Mm. It was kind of wrapped up in misplaced, I would say, in, as, as cultural or ethnic or national yeah. identity. Um, 
And so it's very interesting, you know, from those from those pieces of work how they're they're looking at oppression in various ways. But religion is kind of missing. All yeah. it seems is this very negative force or again. You see, like, yeah, or like they, despite them being religious, yeah. they were also yeah. Yeah, or as a kind of really problematic thing that women have to try and negotiate and come to terms with. So you kind of work done, and a lot of it written kind of autobiographically, life writing styles by women, kind of saying, well, I am Jewish. But I'm a feminist, and I'm managing to reconcile these two things. So it always seems a knotty problem to hold those two things in tension, you know, mm. to hold those two things together. Um, something to be overcome, something to be sorted out. And the way you tend to sort it out is by um, is by kind of de-theologizing de- and, and not paying attention to the real lived religious experiences and practices that these women might be yeah. doing. That's within the third wave. So there is this kind of neglect, and we we know where that's inherited from. It's that you know post enlightenment kind of. Um, suspicion of, of, of religion. Um, and tradition. And tradition. Religion. And then again, still a bit of a hang-up about women, uh, you know, religion is this last base bastion of patriarchy. So within the third wave, Marta and I were kind of concerned about that presentation. But feminist theology and religious feminism in itself probably slightly distance itself um, from some of the work that's been done in kind of a, what you might call kind of secular you know, feminist studies. Yeah. And it, it, feminist theology recognises a lag in itself sometimes about how we know that these discourses are, are going on, these, these wider discourses, and yet they don't recognise a lag in the way that gender theory or feminist theory kind of eventually ends up being used in religious feminism. And feminist theorists like, well, like Rebecca Chop, Linda Woodhead's commented on the kind of mm-hmm. ghettoisation of religion. Ursula King's talked about a uh, kind of double blindness, don't like using a metaphor of disability in this way to, to, yeah, to signal yeah, yeah. a lack um, about religious feminism and the position it holds within the academy there's a you know, we don't, religion is slightly marginalised in the yeah. academy and then you add kind of women's experiences and religion onto that then there's a kind of, you know, a, a risk of it, of, it, of, it, of it not being taken seriously in that way so we noted that, how that was being played out. And I think we were just calling for, in that article, look, the majority of the world's people are religious yeah. and we need to pay attention, keep paying attention to the ways in which religion is shaping identity, mm-hmm. not as something to, a knotty problem necessary to be overcome or de-theologised, but to be taken seriously and to kind of learn that language in that kind of local context, I guess. Mm-hmm. And just to pick up then, as far as the academic study of religion mm-hmm. and its relationship to feminism is concerned, and this might be due to my context, you know, now you know, coming a little bit later than when some yeah, people have been yeah, writing about it, and yeah. also in a UK context, yeah. not in the US, where things might be quite different. But I look around at, say, the Sokol Conference, yeah. and most, I, I actually did a quick tally, yeah. most of the delegates and presenters are female. Yeah. And there are a lot of panels you know, focusing upon um, the, the, the like lived yeah. experience of yeah. um, women and, yeah. and other genders. We um, were talking um, last night, um, and I think uh, it was it was mentioned in one of the keynotes of this conference. Gordon Lynch mentioned it that in two thousand and five, religion and gender was the theme of the of the Sockville conference, and that was my first ever kind of grown up. Um, big three-day conference. I was yeah. a student. I just started my PhD in Lancaster then in the department. And 
I, there was a group of us, um, Sonia Sharma, Giselle Vincent, um, and we were kind of like, well, and everyone was making this big deal about how this was the first time gender had kind of been named as, the, as a soft law theme and the sociology of religion was kind of catching up with that. Where, of course, we'd all started our PhDs. We were like, yeah, but we're doing, you know, we were kind of doing, you know, gender. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that was really exciting, really exciting conference. But that was 2005. Yeah. It was 2005. And so in that, so yes, there are definitely, I think, you know, I, I know in the courses I teach, feminism is peppered through from first from first year onwards. They kind of get a bit sick of mm. going on about it, but they're tough luck. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's there, it's there in the curriculum, but it's not there in every institution. In yeah. every curriculum, it's often specialised in you mm. know third year modules or students come to it to do the dissertation. And mm. um, when we look at kind of career progression within academia amongst women in within theology religious studies maybe less so in sociology but within theology and religious studies there are less women at the kind of top end of, mm. of the career progression so there's that and we know the reasons for that it's still sometimes seen as a softer subject i still get asked in papers why i'm only looking at the experiences of women and when i say well mm. i'm working out of a feminist methodology and they say well what does what does that mean and i say mm. well i'm interested in the way power plays out I want to hear women's experiences I want to see I want to um, I want to work with an attention to, to that that's what it means mm. for me I, I still sometimes get this but you know wh- wh- why do we need to do that and mm. kind of roll my eyes and try yeah, and answer the yeah. question sensibly and then move on <laughs> yeah it's like by it's it's similar to not to say it's similar to Black Lives Matter, but it's the same. Like, why can't we just say that all lives matter? Again, it's yeah. not the point. Yeah. Um, there's a group that's been marginalised, right. and it, in the case of religion, religious studies, and women, women's experience, um, there's yeah. millennia of yeah. uh, marginalisation. Yeah. And, and, and the reason it matters is because it's the way in which gender is constructed, mm. which is negatively skewed in one way but has negative impacts on on the other way so even this very binary notion of of gender that we have which is being critiqued and challenged by yep. fabulous work that's been done in sociology religion and uh, and, and, in, and in theology um that's that's we know, we know that's not true and yet we're still stuck uh, yeah. you know, in, in that but sorry. yeah and and i'm sure as I've been speaking, you know, like it's very difficult not to speak in binary yeah, terms and everything. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I like yeah. to think we're getting there. Yeah, but it, it does matter, and especially if we keep going back. You asked me right at the start, what's your definition of feminism? And I'm, you know, I'm saying to students, hang on a second, this is a critical way. It's an analytical tool as well as a political mm-hmm. tool of looking at the way, you know, these uh, the inequalities play, power and play inequalities. out. Yeah. So. We're already on quite an optimistic note there, but I'd like to, to end, um, you know, we'd like to think towards the future. Mm-hmm. So um, we've been speaking about the history, we've been speaking about the history of research, mm-hmm. but you know, where, where do you see the study of religion and feminism, feminism and religious studies going? I think at the moment uh, it's particularly interesting how the fourth wave of feminism is, is being coded and we're not sure yet how it's too early in some ways but we need to keep an eye on it how religion is being played out in there so if the fourth wave is thought to be happening mostly online through online kind of activist communities and online activism through the twitter and the blogosphere and Mm. all the rest of it 
you know, Christian women, for instance, Christian feminist women, have been using, the, you know, those technologies as a platform with which to question and challenge and critique mm. and, and have new forms of, of, of religion. And so how, I mean, I, me personally, I'd like to see how those, how those two things kind of come together. How is, yeah. how is religion going to be treated and represented by this new thing, apparently, called the fourth fourth wave and then yeah. how are women going to part- participating in that and what does that mean for their um for their religious identities um yeah that that would be something i'm keeping i'd like to keep an eye on and comment yeah. and comment more on and i'm sure um all of our listeners will have their own directions they would like to go um <laughs> Sorry we didn't get to talk more about your own oh. work, um, which I did read a fair bit of in preparation I'm for this. So which sorry. Was, oh, it's a great experience. Um, but I will make sure to point our listeners to that on the webpage of this. And it was a delight to speak to you, Dawn. Oh, thank you very much. It's been great. Thanks as ever to Chris and to Dawn there. Dawn has been a long-time supporter of the Religious Studies Project, so it's great to finally get her on for a, uh, an interview focused on her research. Um, come back, as ever, for the response this Thursday. And in two weeks, you can come back for the next episode in the Socrail series. Next week, however, um, we have an interview by Damon Lycarinos, and it's with Ethan Doyle-White, and it's taking a critical look at the history, beliefs, and practices of Wiccans. Um, a few people have mentioned to me recently that we don't do enough on um, Wicca and other pagan traditions so um, they'll be glad to hear that this one and uh, a couple of others are coming up um, in the next few months. We have um, a very exciting schedule actually coming up. We're now um, recorded all the way up into January and that's before the AAR has happened where I know Brad Stoddart has got some uh, big plans there. So it's looking like it being a, a, a very, very strong year indeed. Um, I'll not bother with any more news um, until I'm back with my uh, colleague next week. Um, what I will do is thank our sponsors as ever, well, Socrail for this episode, but also the BASR and the NAASR and also the Austro- Australian Association who sponsor our uh, email newsletter if you get that every week. So thanks to all of them. You can support the project at no cost to yourself by using our amazon.co.uk.com or .ca um, affiliate links. If you use those when you're shopping on Amazon, we'll get a a small cut um, at no extra charge to you, which does go a long way to supporting the project. Um, You can also find us, as ever, on Twitter, on Facebook, on iTunes, on Google+, on YouTube. I think I've remembered everything there. Um, But until next week, I'll just sign off by saying thanks for listening.